Thank you for downloading the Wings Museum podcast. In this edition, with the museum due to reopen in just a couple of weeks' time, we catch up with co-curator Daniel Hunt. So here we are at the Wings Museum once again. It is uh, Wednesday the 5th of May and it has been uh, quite a productive day uh, volunteer-wise, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah, we're starting to see uh, the volunteers come back now after the lockdown. We have got quite a bit of uh, work going on at the moment in preparation for our reopening. The actual lockdown is being eased on the Monday, but we're normally closed on a Monday. So our opening will be on Tuesday, the 18th of May. So Easing back in gradually. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, as you can imagine, 2020, the museum wasn't open for much of it, really, due to government guidelines. But um, not just that, but it didn't receive the volunteers either. So we would normally have volunteers in on a regular basis looking after it all and, um, you know, dusting and keeping the place sort of looking as uh, spick and spam as we can, really. But uh, obviously, with the lockdown and sort of volunteers staying away and social distancing, there wasn't a lot of that that went on in 2020. So we're now having to play a bit of catch up and kick the spiders out, which have had a, <laughs> <laughs> which have had a whale of a time for the last year. So it's amazing how nature gets back in there, isn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. So we've been busy cleaning, revising some of the displays, improving the context where we can move things together that help tell that story. We're reorganising things somewhat. We've also added quite a lot of um, new items which have been acquired by the museum or donated large items small items uh, all sorts really so there's quite a few changes occurred here at the museum as you can hear there's some hoovering going on in the background as we're speaking so it's really i suppose having seen the museum because we've still been in on a regular basis working away behind the scenes but it has been eerily quiet so it's actually quite nice to see a bit of activity and a bit of noise going on again because the museum is here as a remembrance museum to remind people of what happened 75 plus years ago and all the time the doors are closed and no one's here no one's learning about those kind of sacrifices and the histories which we all feel were very important we do make efforts to remember them especially as the generations are beginning to pass on so now we're back in a slightly quieter thing now that the hoover's been turned off there's been some new faces here today as well Yes, it has. Um, We actually uh, carried out a welcome induction to some new front house volunteers. We are in need of volunteers because we're open six days a week now, so that's quite a large roster to fill. So we welcomed them here today, socially distanced, of course, and uh, we gave them a bit of background on the museum, what the museum's about, what the ambitions are, what the plan is, and uh, you know, just explaining some of the roles here that you would get involved in as a volunteer front of house. And you know, obviously, we'd love to hear from others that could potentially spare a, a couple of days a month, or a couple of days a week, or as, you know, as, as often as you can make yourself available. Really, I mean, that, that's the problem, isn't it? Really, that uh, perhaps some people are slightly nervous that they'll be expected to be here every day of the week, or you know, at least dedicated to one day a week. But you could be flexible, can't you? Yeah, we can. I think that's why museums such as this need quite a large list of volunteers, even if somebody can just say that they can do one day a month. 
you know, it fills a space in the roster and we know that there's someone here on that day. We do need more people because we can't always predict exactly how busy we're going to be. And of course, we're sort of talking post-COVID now as well. We understand that people are a little bit nervous, even us as curators at a museum. But I guess actually recruiting in a a worldwide pandemic is is quite a challenge. (laughs) You know, as you can imagine, the times that we were open last year... We took all the COVID precautions that that one does. And one thing that we did recognise was that a lot of our volunteers are of a retirement age, so are perhaps in that shielding category. So we did provide, and it's still in place now, and I think it will remain in place for some considerable time, but it's a big screen around the till area that um, protects those that are on duty. It's an extra level, isn't it? Masks are presumably still going to be worn for a little while. Yeah, I mean, I think until such a time that we get the go-ahead that masks are no longer required, then um, we will st- you know, certainly still be using them. We sort of hope that perhaps later this year, if it all goes well, that we can start sort of easing up on some of these things. But I also think a lot of people will choose to carry on with the precautions because why not, really? I mean, we will certainly continue to supply the sanitizer and... We will continue to sanitise displays and sort of public areas. But yeah, front of house is, is just really just demand the till area and just talk to people and welcome them. You don't need to be particularly an expert on World War Two. Some people But just, it helps. <laughs> well, it does it does help, but everything here in the museum is labelled with the story anyway, so really people can can generally find what they're looking for in the displays themselves. And, and let's be perfectly honest, a lot of the visitors coming through the front door actually know quite a lot themselves and are often quite happy to share that with the volunteers. Yeah, that's right. The other thing which is quite nice, actually, is when you get people sharing their experiences or their memories or something like that. So you just never know who's going to come in through that door. So that's that's quite interesting as well. When he was with us one uh, Sunday, we had Captain Eric Winkle Brown walking through the museum. So you just never know who can come in through those doors. And yet you let him get out the doors without sitting down and chatting for several hours. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't on duty on, at that time, but I think those that were on duty certainly spoke to him. If they could hear him. <laughs> We've just moved here to what we call the Ghosts of the Tundra part of the museum which really has become about the pacific war and we have something here which is new to the museum this year nobody's actually seen it yet and it's a display case dedicated to the burma campaign we have some original memorabilia from a chindit they were special forces and operated sort of behind enemy lines they were very isolated and next to it we have the flying helmet from a c-47 dakota raf pilot who supply drop to the Chindit, so there's a connection there. Burma is one of those campaigns that, well, I mean, people do talk about it, but it's often overshadowed by what happened in Europe. It was a long way from home, and they're often referred to as the Forgotten Army. So when you find veterans that are being sort of labelled with that kind of title, us as a museum want to ensure that they're remembered. So... It's the beginning of a hopefully growing display. And were these items donated by um, someone connected with the campaign? Yes, they were, actually. Um, The Chindit group of items was actually uh, my friend's granddad. Oh, wow. Um, And he actually gave me his hat 
when I was 18, a lot, a lot younger than I am now. Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to art college with him, actually, and he gave me the hat then, and I've kept it ever since. But more recently, going through his uh, mum's loft, he come across his uh, Special Forces knife and his medals and escape scarf, which has got like a map of Burma, which mm-hmm. they often sort of wear around their neck. Yeah. So, yeah, those items have been added. The flying helmet again, which is from a DFC. He was actually awarded the DFC for his supply drops. That was also donated by a member of the family. So we're very grateful to any donations that we can get because for the museum's point of view, it's guaranteed provenance. And provenance is important because, unfortunately, when you get, like anything, with uh, dealers involved, some of them are completely genuine, but you, you always get people out there that, for the sake of a few extra pounds, will make up a story or associate something to them that doesn't belong. Or, you know, they'll add items to kind of get more money for something. So we're very wary of that. So, yeah, items direct from the families, of course, are sort of like gold dust for us, really. And the stories that, you know, that come with them as well. Underneath there, you'll see there's a metal tin trunk. That was the subject of a little bit of a mystery in 2020. And that was donated by Sussex police, who had actually um, found it in some undergrowth dumped in uh, hassocks nearby to the museum. And it is a metal tin trunk with various sort of handwritten, uh, well, hand-painted to an LAC bus, RAF, with his serial number, and literally nothing was known about the box. We didn't know anything about leading aircraftsman bus, but through the powers of Facebook, um, <laughs> through the help of our followers, really, we can't really take any credit. It was them that found the family, uh, and they come forward, and they just managed to visit us before we were closed down again through the government restrictions. So they did actually manage to visit and see the trunk on display, so they were very pleased to see it on display and they also gave us some photographs so it, it is nice when you can sort of like have an item of history like that and actually put a face to it and, and the, the power of the internet to find people who are directly connected with it certainly yeah because it saves a lot of time like in the old days when you used to have to trawl <laughs> through the yellow pages or the phone book and phone up all the buses in a certain area and ask them the question was your relative serving in the RAF during World War Two? We've been there and done that. Thankfully, we don't have <laughs> to do on. that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think Facebook is is always important because of the awareness that it creates for the museum. We're always appreciative of those that share our pages on social media as well. It's very important, and it is the way of keeping people directly in touch with the museum alongside the podcast and the website and everything else. But Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are much more instant, aren't they? Yeah, that's right, because obviously I'm speaking to a podcast interviewer. I will say the podcast is by far the most important <laughs> thing in the museum yeah, publicity. Good, good but um, Yes, social media is often a good way of sharing sort of everyday developments and things and efforts that are made at the museum. It's not always possible to put everything on the website, so social media just provides that opportunity to post something up that's um, been achieved or happened. And it is a good two-way thing as well. If people want to get in touch with the museum, with information, with a question, that's the way to do it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we do get quite a lot of information come through. So for us, not only does it know, sort of inform people of what's going on, but often people will contribute further information to us, which can be built into the displays. 
I'll show you something else that's been put in the museum this year. We're just standing by the recovered wreck of a Bell P-63 King Cobra that operated with the Russians in the Kuriel Islands and actually took part in an invasion against some of the Japanese-held islands uh, in August 1945. We are actually restoring one to static condition. It's taken some years, of course, but we've actually just, in the process of putting the cockpit on display, which is actually completely restored now, and... uh, Tony, the guy that's uh, done all the work and, you know, has literally worked from the original drawings, has created this cockpit. So the visitors can actually now look inside the cockpit. All the instrument panels, the controls, the gun sight is all there. The project is probably about 80% all original. So a lot of work has gone into reusing items for the, uh, for the restoration it's actually the only place in Europe where you could see a P-63 King Cobra. So we're not quite at the point where we can start the engine yet, but you never know. <laughs> a bit, bit breezy at the moment still. Give but, us another 10 years and maybe. Yeah. I mean, you say it's 80% original, but does that mean it all came in a box from the Kuriel Islands and it's been put back together? Or have you had to find some of those bits from somewhere else? Well, the, the actual airframe, the, the actual cockpit structure is original. We've replaced a few skins, put a few repairs, um, replaced all the anchor nuts because they had corroded away. But yes, we have had to acquire various things. Um, some of it we've purchased on eBay. Um, the the armoured screen there, I mean, as you can imagine, um, to expect uh, an armour-plated front screen to sort of to stay at the crash site for 70 odd years and not be smashed or vandalized is a bit of a tall order so that came in from the states but, um, but it is a genuine reinforced armor plated whatever <laughs> phrase you would use yeah. bit of glass that was in a king cobra originally yes that's right the glass is completely original it's a laminated section so it's different layers of glass with a laminated section in between so if it took a bullet strike it wouldn't smash the entire glass it would just break one of the sort of you know the outside layers Mm. but for example the gun sight there that's fitted that was actually found on the floor of one of the cockpits of the Rex and has been uh, restored and and fitted as it would have been the rear view mirror there is also although okay we've replaced the glass but the the actual mirror itself is all original the rudder pedals are original recovered from the Kuril Islands so that's what we're about really we're about originality uh, we're about saving history and reusing as much as we can. All right, well, moving into the workshop now that uh, all the noise has stopped and uh, the, the workers have uh, departed for the moment, there's definitely something different in here since my last visit before Christmas. Yeah, there's been actually quite a lot of work put into the workshop during lockdown and uh, over this winter. One of our engineers has taken it upon himself to sort out our tools to create shadow boards so that everything has a silhouette behind it so that if it's not been put back you can see that it hasn't been put back and you can see sort of what it looks like and what's missing and I'm looking at something right now um, which hasn't (laughs) which actually hasn't been put back today there's um three pairs of tin snips and uh just to bore everybody you have a (laughs) yeah there's a shadow with no tool on it but um you have the red and the green, which is uh, left hand and right hand cut in, and it's the straight cut, the yellow handles that is missing. So, um, 
Yeah. If, if we can see one, any of them lying around anywhere. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, we've also created some more work areas with their own sort of tall shadow boards because we do have quite a lot going on in quite a small workshop, really, to be fair. We got the cockpit from our North American B25 Mitchell, which is being restored at the moment and work is concentrating around where the instrument panel would mount on so there was quite a bit of sort of corrosion there so a lot of that structure has been removed renovated and is now being riveted back in we've also got the wing the outer wing sections from the mitchell which last year were outside where they were blasted and put into etch primer and they are now been brought into the workshop which was not easy, as you can imagine. <laughs> well, that and they do rather take over the space, don't they? <laughs> they do They do somewhat, but really, I suppose, to sort of point out is that the slight problem with the workshop is that it doesn't actually have a large door that accesses the outside. So we actually had to bring the wings through the museum, which meant that we had to move various display cabinets, take things down and pretty much create a lot of devastation in the museum to get the wings in and then of course we had to sort of turn around and put everything back again so we're quite pleased to have them indoors now so the intention now is to get a team on that on restoring those and what's that going to involve a, a lot of rebuilding of the structure a bit of uh, sheets on the outside there or yeah it's it's mainly to kind of make up some repair sections for the ribs there's some damage and some corrosion on some of the ribs so we just need to kind of uh, fabricate the parts that we need and and rivet them together with a doubler yeah it's a little bit of skin work but we do plan to use the original skins where possible and is, is the idea to get it back to you know original condition or just to stop the deterioration um a bit of both really i think complete but there's certain detailing on the ribs inside the wing that North American did a kind of a double sort of flanged edge around the lightning holes. Most aircraft lightning holes have a kind of a swaged edge, which just gives it strength. But North American did a double one, which is very, very difficult for us to replicate. So we'll just be doing a single one on on the new sections we make up. But then when you think that it'll be inside a wing and, and it won't be seen anyway, it's it's not really a, a major problem. And again, it, it's you're not trying to get them airworthy? No, absolutely not. It's not going to be uh, carrying a bomb load anymore or, <laughs> or, or trying to take off down the runway. So we make it as strong as we possibly can, but um, you know we don't need to worry too much about that. We'll also use solid rivets. A lot of restorations out there use pop rivets, which a lot of the post-war aircraft are pop riveted, and some World War II aircraft are pop riveted in certain locations, but mostly it's solid rivets, so that's what we'll be putting back. just looks more original. And is it a silly question to ask how you're going to get them back out again? Is it the... uh... Same, same back through the museum, a bit awkward. <laughs> or is that too far in advance to worry about now? <laughs> well, I, think, I don't think we need to worry about it for some time. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah ultimately, they're going to have to go the way that they uh, came in. But, you know, I think realistically, we're looking at a few years before they need to be moved. And, and how do you hope to display them? Is, is it sort of uh, back outside or inside? Or am I getting ahead of myself? Um, getting ahead of yourself a little bit, but 
I think with anything that is of a World War II vintage, it's got to be inside because that is really what's sort of created the work on this particular aircraft is that it has been a gate guardian for some years. So whilst it's a complete airframe, you know, aircraft can't sit out for forever. I mean, they were designed to be outside even during the war and even now you know if you drive past Gatwick airport the 737s aren't in a nice warm hangar they're just sitting outside but of course not for sort of 40 or 50 odd years yeah it, 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 the fact that they're sitting still and getting damp in the wrong places and things rather than flying and at least some of the moisture departing and heating up and cooling down and everything else yeah that's right and the other thing is condensation so this particular Mitchell was actually constructed in bare metal so the inside of the wings was completely bare metal with no protection at all and what happens is as the temperatures go up and down inevitably you get condensation occurring and so you get a lot of trapped moisture inside the wings and uh, you know that doesn't really do them any favours but what what we have done is that we've kind of changed the rules a little bit in that uh, we are putting everything into etch primer so we're not leaving it natural metal and we will quite likely coat the inside of the wings with a wax which cuts down the condensation and just sort of ensures that you know it's there for the next generation yeah i mean originally presumably they weren't being built for 10 years 20 years 30 years down the line they were being built because they were needed now yeah that's right i mean certainly sort of 1944 onwards the american aircraft factories didn't consider that they needed to paint them in camouflage anymore they they considered that they had air superiority paint adds weight to an aircraft it's another process that it has to go through so these things were being knocked out tens of a dozen and as you say the last thing on their mind was an aircraft corroding away quite often the fact of the matter was that it might only fly like you know a dozen missions before being shot down so uh actually she's done really well considering she's been outside for 40 years you know what you see there there's a few areas where obviously the water's got to but there's a lot of structure there that that is still the same as it was the day it rolled out the factory in 1944 i mean there's even some of the original stencils in there one of them refers to jacking the ship which of course the americans called these aircraft a ship it's american terminology so that's sort of quite interesting to see original details like that so obviously we haven't removed that that's still there we've preserved all that kind of thing Right, so we've relocated once again, and uh, standing next to the three Merlin engines, and this is just a quite a reminder that one of the things that people really do look forward to are the Merlin engine runs. Dare I ask if any of them are planned for this year? Um, yeah, I think the answer is yes, but we're, we are probably going to just monitor the situation before we rush in and put the dates up on the website, social media, Facebook... But, yeah, the, the Merlin, she needs to run again, and she's ready and willing. We're standing in front of the three engines, which are from Halifax JD-150. The fourth engine has been painstakingly restored to run again. The important thing is to mention that these are remembrance engines, so the crew gave their lives in this Halifax, and it was shot down on its way to Hamburg on the 27th of July, 1943. And tragically, all the crew were lost. The engines were located when they were clearing ordnance at the site by the German authorities in 2010. 
and as I say, one of these engines is now running with the original saxophone-style exhausts, which are unique to the Mark II Halifax. Basically, they resemble a saxophone. And With they, imagination, yes. <laughs> yeah. They were designed to dampen the flames at night so that the night fighters couldn't see the exhaust flames. So that was the idea of those. But the sound of a Merlin, I mean, everybody knows what the sound of a Merlin mm. sounds like, but I suppose what is special about these is prior to a public run, we will give people a bit of background information on that final flight, that final mission. The skipper was only 18 years old, which is quite shocking, really. And we will read out the names of the crew, their ages, and then we'll say what happened that particular night. And then, you know, you hear that engine start up and you kind of realise that that is the very engine that that skipper was battling with to try and get his crew home. And sometimes it doesn't start on the first turn of the key, does it? So battling is often a good word. She does now. That's a promise. (laughs) Yeah, our engineer, actually, we did have some starting issues. It was a little bit stubborn to get going. We discovered, actually, on one of the injectors that one of the ports was blocked. So uh, the last run that we did, it literally started within a few seconds. Personally, I, I actually quite like it to be sort of a balance between the two. If it fires up too quickly, you kind of miss that kind of, you know, exciting build-up. <laughs> so uh, we, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But we will probably later on, sort of this summer, we will announce some dates. It's the only place in Europe, certainly probably in the world, where you can actually hear a genuine Halifax Merlin engine in the exact configuration of a Halifax. The exhaust give it a different sound from any other Merlin this is a Merlin 20 which was also fitted to the Hurricane and the early Lancasters but again they wouldn't sound like this engine because of the uh, saxophone style exhausts they just give it a quieter sweeter sound which uh, yeah that's quite a unique thing anyway. And of course the difficult thing from a public invitation to come and hear this point of view is not having too many people but having enough to make it you know an event. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what made it a little bit of a challenge during the pandemic. Technically, you could do events, but you would have to control the numbers of who could attend the events. And that is a very difficult thing to to monitor because, um, you know, too little. And, you know, obviously, is, is the event sort of worth running? Because the Merlin burns quite a lot of fuel, just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> even in five minutes, you know, it's... Um, it's quite a quite a fuel um, bill, shall we say. But uh, the other thing is, if you have too many, obviously in a pandemic, then that's a problem, you know. Um, and it's if if you did a ticket sales, you know, how can you control those that have purchased a ticket in advance and those that just turn up at the museum? You know, um, no, you mustn't listen. <laughs> no, exactly. We we can't really stop people seeing it. Um, yeah. You know, from our point of view. We want people to see it, want people to remember the guys that that lost their lives, you know, um, in this aircraft. And the other part of the remembrance thing, and numbers of people in the museum, group visits. Are you able to open the doors to groups? Are there limits on numbers? What's the situation with that at the moment? With groups, after the 17th of May, we should be running back to normal capacity, which means that we will actually be 
targeting uh, youth organisations like Beavers and Scouts. And we'll also be the U3A groups. We'd be welcoming those back, hopefully, and we can entertain evening visits, which is always, uh, you know, quite. This place takes on a little bit of a different feeling. Uh, in the evening even more eerie <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah also we'll be targeting schools and also coach companies in 2020 we had our first coach companies booked to come in some of them actually having a guided tour but then we obviously kicked into covid and they were all forced to cancel so we will be busy resurrecting some of those bookings and just getting the word out there of the museum it's always a difficult thing to do is to to get people to know about the museum and just normal everyday visiting opening times booking how's that going to work uh we shall be on the 18th of may um when we reopen we will be back to normal operating hours Uh, there's no need to book we're looking forward to actually welcoming people back and continuing what the museum does which is uh to remember and to educate we host a lot of school visits and give them uh, structured talks and exhibit handling it's about sharing it it's about people seeing all this really and reading those stories and those histories to remember those sort of brave men and women that uh, did their bit during world war ii for more information about visiting the museum find out what's going on or to get in touch visit www.wingsmuseum.co.uk